Kim's forum of And as uh, we begin, I want to start by asking you a question, a question that you've probably heard this week, maybe even several times. That question is this, what are your goals for this quarter? What are your goals for this quarter? It's the question to ask. It's the GOC approved, almost predictable, yet always productive, surefire way to start a discussion first week of any quarter. What are your goals for this quarter? But really, I want you to think about it. What comes to mind? What are the one, two, or three things that come to mind that are your goals for this quarter? The implication of that question, even, is that godly, motivated, good people have goals. They know where they're going. If you're good people around here, you have direction. And not just general direction. General direction isn't good enough. You're supposed to know precisely where you're headed with your career, uh, with your major, with how many research hours you have per week. Uh, you're supposed to know precisely where you're headed with your gains in the gym. You're supposed to know precisely where you're headed with your relationship with that guy or girl that your small group leader thinks you spend too much time with. You're supposed to know where you're going because you've got goals. You have ambitions. You're intentional. Or you're learning what that means. And as you seek to meet expectations that other people put on you, maybe it's your small group leader or your friends or your helicopter parents or the culture around you, or it's by the pressure that you put on yourself and your pride that you feel like you need to defend. What started as goals, for better or for worse, quickly becomes deeply ingrained desires and passions and aspirations, even non-negotiable hurdles for this quarter. Dreams, or for some of you, delusions uh, that you hold dear in your heart. You see, if we're honest, these goals, however spiritual in nature or however biblical in our thinking we begin, can so easily become a self-centered, self-driven endeavor. Uh, even the ministry opportunities we are given as we join a team or continue in small group and get a chance to teach can quickly become a self-centered, self-driven endeavor. What even became, began as godly desires and the good blessings of God can become distorted when passed through what's left of this world's value system in our hearts. And when we get that way, we are then driven by our own pride, either in our abilities, even our giftedness, uh, to do what needs to be done, to study what needs to be studied, uh, or our pride drives us uh, to prove ourselves, this sort of hunger that we have. And then so much so that even the outcome feeds back into our pride. We, uh, in our wins, in our, uh, in our successes, we feed that insatiable monster that is our pride. And then in our losses, we take that L, but we feel the sting of the disconnect between our perception of ourselves and the reality of what just happened. It becomes all about us and our pride. You see, goals, ambition, can become selfish ambition. And this is what we see in our text tonight. James warns us of the peril of selfish ambition, uh, the danger of being driven and self-motivated, basing our goals and hopes and passions on the world's achievement-based value system rather than God's. This selfish ambition is a self-seeking, self-satisfying outlook on life. It's our success, our well-being, our self-gratification at the expense of everyone around us. It's our increase, our progress, with no regard for God's will and God's ways. It's all about us. 
So let's take a look tonight at the peril of selfish ambition, the danger of life outside God's wisdom. And with it, we'll also see God's grace. We'll see the beauty of life when it is humbly submitted to God. So turn, if you haven't already, to James chapter 4, and we'll read verses 1 through 10. James 4, 1 through 10. James, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says He yearns jealously over the Spirit that He has made to dwell in us? But He gives more grace. Therefore it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. Lord, we thank You for uh, the truthfulness and clarity of Your Word. It is a lamp to our feet and a light to our steps. So help us, Lord, by your Spirit's work to respond in a faith that squashes selfish ambition in our hearts and turns instead in true and humble submission to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Tonight as we continue in James and continue to look at a faith-lived out. A faith lived out. What true faith looks like in life. We'll see that true faith seeks to eliminate selfish ambition and instead humbly submits to God. True faith seeks to eliminate selfish ambition and instead humbly submits to God. We'll look at this kind of true faith in three parts. The first, in verses 1 through 3, and that's the problem of selfish ambition. The problem of selfish ambition. Uh, Here in our passage, we see a problem in the churches that James is writing to. A problem embedded in our church, and your friend's church, and every church that has human beings in it. It's the reason there is no perfect church. And that problem is selfish ambition. You see, what James sees here in chapter 4 in the Jerusalem church and in the churches he's writing to, on the outward level, is a symptom. An outward sign. A symptom of a greater problem inside. And that sign that he sees is something that's going on in the hearts of God's people. An indication that selfish ambition is sitting somewhere in the pew. And that symptom that he sees is conflict in the church. James calls these conflicts quarrels, the connotation of a military conflict, a battle or a fight sometimes, or other times a state of hostility, this antagonism. Uh, We see that in our world even today between countries. Uh, The other word he uses to describe this conflict is fights. And that's the connotation of strife or disputes, but instead with words or interpersonal interaction. You see, what James is saying here is selfish ambition 
doesn't just stay within yourself. The selfishness of our selfish ambition works its way out of our hearts and manifests itself in our words, in our actions, in our attitudes, and our interactions with other people. And here James says, this is what causes quarrels and fights amongst God's people. This is something that we saw in our last passage at the end of chapter 3, at the end of last quarter. Look back at the end of chapter 3. And if you remember, there are two kinds of wisdom that we looked at. Godly wisdom and worldly wisdom. Each of these two wisdoms bear a particular kind of fruit. Godly wisdom, look at verse 18 of chapter 3, brings a harvest of righteousness that is sown in peace by those who make peace. And earthly wisdom, found right before in that passage, results in conflict. Look at verses 15 and 16 of chapter 3. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. You see, now here in chapter 4, what we see is that this external conflict James sees in the church is caused by internal conflict in the hearts of God's people. Between the godly wisdom that we're supposed to pursue in true faith and the worldly wisdom so prevalent in our hearts and around us in the cultural milieu and in our ears and in front of our eyes all the time, godly wisdom and earthly wisdom intermingled in the hearts of God's people. You see, what for the Christian should be a simple and settled devotion to God and His wisdom is instead a war between worldly passions and godly desires. When we as God's people hold on to the values and priorities of this world, when our hearts are drawn to and driven along by the earthly and the fleshly, to the finite and the temporal, we begin to operate on the principles and values of self-promotion and self-aggrandizement. You see, instead of living for eternity beyond this world that will pass away, instead of living in service to the gospel, the most selfless of causes, instead of living for the glory of God, a, a glory above and beyond ourselves, instead of loving and caring for other people around us like we should, each one of us, in part or in full, has lived or still lives with selfish ambition. The desire to better ourselves and only ourselves. This is what happens when worldly wisdom goes to church and godly wisdom has to fight for a seat. This is what happens when God's people are compromised in their allegiance, when we allow our worldly passions to intermingle with our godly affections. Inevitably, the passions and interests of one selfishly ambitious person conflict with that of another selfishly ambitious person in the church and that of yet another person in the church. And this causes quarrels and fights amongst God's people. Look at verse 2, and James traces the thought process of selfish ambition. You desire and you do not have, so you murder, James says. Now, while it's possible that at some point someone actually murdered somebody else over something they wanted or something they, a position that they wanted to have. I believe James here is pointing out Jesus' now very familiar logic in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, turn to Matthew 5 and we can see that together. Matthew 5, verse 21. We'll look at what Jesus says about murder 
Matthew 5, verse 21. And Jesus preaches there, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. The selfish ambition of the heart, this sole focus on possessions or position or opportunities or uh, relationships turns into hatred for someone else that might have that thing or friendship or position that you want. And that hatred is, in the words of our Savior, equal to being guilty of murder, liable to judgment. This is simply the desire to further oneself at the expense of someone else. Look at the second couplet in verse 2. James says, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. This is a similar idea to the first one, but particularly focused on what someone else has. You see, as opposed to general ambition or drive to obtain something, this is dialed in on what your neighbor has or enjoys or gets to do and not you. And the result You want that so much, you don't just murder them in your heart, you're willing to wrestle them for it. You'll fight and you'll quarrel. And then look further into that selfish ambition here at the end of verse 3. James says, you do not have because you do not ask. You see, because of the selfish ambition in your heart, you would rather hate and fight, you would rather murder and quarrel than to ask your heavenly Father, the giver of all good things, who can, out of His infinite supply and in His limitless generosity, who can bless you with what you desire. You'd rather fight and quarrel. You'd rather murder than to ask God. But James continues to dig in just a little bit more. Look at verse 3. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Doesn't this speak volumes about the desires of our hearts? So often we ask God in our prayers even for more wisdom. But wisdom so that we would succeed and prosper and get what we want. So often we ask God for increased ministry opportunities but it's because we like the sound of our own voice or the attention it brings us. So often we ask God for wisdom, but just so that we would have the wisdom to navigate so we can start dating the person we want to. So often we ask God for us to do well academically, but so that we would succeed and make a name for ourselves. And so when we do ask, we don't receive, James points out, because we ask wrongly. We ask so that we can feed our passions and our pride. We can feed our selfish ambition. And God sees right through that. And so James is saying, instead of bringing your hopes and dreams and desires before the Lord, you don't even ask because you know that the way you think about these things is a way that doesn't line up with God's will. And then further, if you dare to ask God, you ask out of desperation and sort of a a last resort, half-court heave mentality. You've come to your wit's end at not being able to achieve whatever it is you want on your own. And James is saying you do not receive because God sees right through our motives. And either way, whether you don't ask or you ask and you don't receive, this is an indictment both on our prayer lives and our priorities. It's a judgment both on what we want most in this life and a judgment on what we are willing to pray for. There should be nothing in this life 
that we cannot bring to God in prayer. You see, it's a tell if whether what we want in life is even worth praying for. Perhaps our priorities are so of this world, they're not even on the prayer radar. When's the last time you ran the things you wanted most in life through the fine mesh filter of whether it's something you'd ask God's blessing for? And then when God doesn't grant you what you pray for, are you quicker to question His justice or His generosity or His goodness rather than to look for where selfish ambition may be alive and well in your own heart. More broadly, when you have conflict in your life with others, do you run to justify yourself, to clear your own name, to establish your own self-righteousness? Or do you examine humbly and carefully for where selfish ambition may be affecting your relationships with other people. Our pastor, Pastor John, says this. uh, He says, every problem that our church has ever faced can be traced back to a lack of love. Every problem that our church has ever faced can be traced back to a lack of love. Now he says that, and he's right about some of the biggest controversies and uh, situations that our church has faced. Uh, But he's also talking about all of the little interpersonal things that we've faced as a church and as members of the body of Christ. That is to say, in a more specific way, in light of our text, every conflict between believers, every fight and quarrel, even here in our group, can be traced back to a lack of love, a lack of awareness of other people, a lack of somebody else other than ourselves. It can be traced back to the problem of selfish ambition. Secondly, as we look at selfish ambition and its peril, uh, we look at the heart of selfish ambition. The heart of selfish ambition in verses 4 and 5. Here, next in our text we see the very nature of selfish ambition. We've seen what it produces, what the result is, and that's conflict in the church. And we see how it gets there in its proud, prayerless, self-absorbed passions and desires. Well, here we see the very heart of selfish ambition. We see what it is made of. What is at its Uh, We all have that one friend who loves to bake, uh, baked goods. And they'll come by maybe your apartment and give you a little sampling of what they've experimented with last. Baked goods. I don't know if you've had this experience, but sometimes my wife will give me something without telling me exactly what it is. And I'll take a bite, and the first question, because everything my wife makes is awesome, is this is really, really good. What is this? What's, what's in this? In the back of my mind, I think, is this gluten-free? What's in this? What, what is this? And that's exactly the question we're trying to ask of selfish ambition right here. In order to figure out how to eliminate selfish ambition... In our lives, we need to know what it's all about, what it's made of, what's in it. And we've hinted at this already, but selfish ambition at its very core is composed of worldly wisdom. Worldly wisdom. Selfish ambition is informed by and shaped by and built by worldly wisdom. Its sole influence is the values and priorities of this world. 
And that's why James, next in our text, levels a harsh indictment on those driven by self, selfish ambition, uh, those who are guided by this earthly wisdom. Look at verse 4. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. This is blunt and harsh language, even for James. The concept here, though, is simple. Those trying to befriend the world and its values and its priorities are at enmity with God. They are enemies of God. And why is that? Well, James here is implying with this first accusation in verse 4 that to be joined to the world and its wisdom and to, at the same time, claim allegiance to God and His wisdom is spiritual adultery. It's hypocritical, disingenuous, and unfaithful. It's adulterous. This has Israel vibes all over it. It's clear James wants to draw on these Jewish believers' knowledge of their own people. And his warning is sort of, be careful, otherwise the apple won't fall far from the tree. You see, when God gave His people His law, He declared them to be rightfully His, a people for His own possession, a kingdom of priests unto His name, a nation holy, set apart for Him. Yet over and over, God's people worshipped other gods and sacrificed to idols and intermarried with their enemies, a faithless, unfaithful people disobeying the God who had chosen them and to whom they belonged. God's people we see in the Old Testament over and over, generation after generation, committed spiritual adultery against God, the God who had placed His love on them. The most poignant example of this in the Old Testament is Hosea. The book of Hosea brings this to life, literally. God tells his prophet Hosea to take a wife, and the ESV uses the word uh, wife of whoredom, and he takes this wife, Gomer, who is constantly unfaithful to Hosea. It's even painful to think about. And Hosea's faithfulness to the marriage covenant in that book, in the face of adultery, repeated adultery, serves as a picture of God's faithful love in the face of rampant spiritual adultery by God's people. And so Hosea serves as a picture of God's covenant faithfulness to His people despite their unfaithfulness. And this is what James is saying here. If you are a part of God's people... You cannot simultaneously be sold out for your worldly passions and pleasures and also completely dedicated to following Jesus faithfully. It's one or the other. And so he says here, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You must take up your cross and follow Jesus. Deny all that you have and follow Jesus solely. Follow Jesus wholly. Follow Jesus holistically and completely with everything you have. James expounds on this idea in verse 5. Look at verse 5. Or do you suppose it is, no pur- it is to no purpose that the Scripture says... He yearns jealously over the Spirit that He has made to dwell in us. Now the commentators have so much difficulty here uh, because while it sounds like a particular Old Testament passage is being referenced in some way, 
nowhere in the Hebrew Old Testament or even the Septuagint, the Greek New Testament, are these words found. There is not a verse that says this. And so James here must be, instead of referencing a specific passage, it must be referring generally to the concept of God's jealousy over the loyalty of his own people. That is to say, maybe this should have been translated without quotation marks and instead saying the scripture says this concept. This righteous jealousy of God, while the verse itself in its words is not found, as a concept is found all over the, New Te- all over the Old Testament. Exodus 20, verse 5, as God gives his people his law, calls God a jealous God. And passages throughout Deuteronomy and Joshua, Isaiah, Ezekiel, all picture God as a jealous God, even going so far as to execute and demonstrate that jealousy in punishment or judgment to his people for their rebellion against him. And so James here says God is jealous over the spirit he has made to dwell in us, and it's Hard to be certain, but I believe this isn't a reference to the Holy Spirit, but to the spirit of man, the breath of life that he has placed in all people. We were created and designed and given life in his own image to know and love him. And he yearns jealously over that for us to do that, to know and love him. And yet throughout history, God's people, of whom we are as well, are generation after generation enraptured with the things of this world rather than the things of God. We are captivated captivated by the wisdom of the age instead of God, who is rightfully so jealous for his own people. And so not only does selfish worldly ambition produce conflict amongst God's people, The peril of selfish ambition is that being driven by a love for the world, being controlled by earthly wisdom, instead of God's wisdom, puts you in opposition to the living God. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. That's the peril of selfish ambition. Those who, in Romans 5, while we were enemies, were reconciled, made friends with God, made friends of God, through the death of His Son, should not and cannot flip that friendship that we have now with God back into enmity, out of some kind of love for the world and the things of the world. What foolishness that would be. That's why 1 John 2.15 says this, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. You see, if you find yourself constantly and consistently loving the things of the world more than the things of God, you may not have the love of God in you. You may not know Jesus like you think you do. And that's a warning and a pleading more than it is a judgment from a fellow human being. Matthew 6.24 gives a similar idea, but in a different vein. Jesus preaches there, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money, the very currency of this world system. You've got to choose to be on one team. You can't be on both. Those who are gods must be holy and completely His. Don't minimize your sin. Don't minimize your love for this world's pleasures. Don't just say that they're struggles or Uh, that you're just working through things. Be honest with yourself when you sense a love uh, for the world and a drift toward the things uh, of this earth. 
uh, what James is saying by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is this is spiritual adultery and so it must be this must not be taken lightly or seen as harsh uh, but instead a true and spiritual indictment on our hearts if we love the world friendship with the world is enmity with God God's word here is pointing us out as his people we were so undeservedly brought out of darkness and into his marvelous light adopted as sons and daughters by our heavenly father and so we must not forsake such riches as those who are his for the pursuit of the fool's gold of the riches of this life beware the peril of selfish ambition Because at best, it will give you everything this world has to offer. And at worst, it will mean enmity with God. Finally, in this passage, we see the third, the antidote to selfish ambition. The antidote to selfish ambition. Verses 6 through 10. Here in these verses, we see James' answer to this problem of selfish ambition rooted in a love for the world and boiling out into conflict in the church. Now here we see the antidote, the answer to selfish ambition. Here in this section, James gives us ten commands. Notice as you scan those verses, the staccato nature of this section. James crams in a whole bunch of commands. It's a series of pointed All business imperatives aimed straight at your high horse. As we look at this section, I don't want you to lose the forest for the trees. I don't want you to get hung up on each individual verb so much as the bigger picture. Because otherwise there will be seemingly so many things for you to do. But that's not the case. I want you to see two things here about these verses in the grander scheme, the bigger picture of what James is saying in these verses. First, in all of this, it's what comes first. James gives us what we must understand about this antidote, that any help, any change, any hope that we have in this, as we are so very entrenched in our selfish ambition, can only be found in the grace of God. Look at verse 6. But he gives more grace. But he gives more grace. You see, while we fail like Israel generation after generation, time after time, that is met with more grace it is met with abounding and astounding grace failure met with grace it's Romans 6 abounding and abundant grace James writes therefore it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble you see the same grace He so abundantly supplied at salvation is available and operating in your life always, even when you fail. You see, if tonight as you hear about this problem of selfish ambition, you think about your life and you know your life is completely overtaken by selfish ambition. Uh, The way you live your life is aggressively and categorically about yourself and about your progress, and about what you want. And you see now, as we look through this passage, you're an enemy of God, maybe, and that you served yourself, and no one else, and certainly not God. And maybe you're compelled to change that, as you get the sense that there's something different about Christians, about the people you know around you that know Jesus. Or maybe you are a Christian, and yet you see in your life the ever-present influence of the world on your life. And as you examine tonight, you see that selfish ambition 
creeps into your life continually. Maybe it's the friends you hang out with, or maybe it's the stuff you watch, or the things you listen to. But you're letting the world influence you. Well, James wants to point out, whether you're one or the other, God indeed gives more grace. And the very fact that you are here tonight to hear this message of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, is a form of that grace in your life. To call you to repentance. That although you were made in the image of God, you and I have all lived our lives in opposition to our Creator. Though made to know and love Him, we have hated Him and pursued the things of the world instead. Yet God sent His Son, Jesus, to live in perfect righteousness in obedience to His Father. And that righteousness at the cross is applied to us undeserving sinners such that Jesus, when He was raised from the dead after three days, gives us victory over sin and death. That message, Grace on Campus, is God's grace given to us in James 4. God indeed gives us more grace. But there's a second big picture thing I want you to see, and it connects here. In verse 6, we see who it is that God does give His grace to. You see, this whole endeavor James is on to help us to see that true faith eliminates selfish ambition and instead humbly submits to God is 100% 100 couched in the grace of God for sinners freely and generously given. And we acknowledge that God opposes the proud, the the selfishly ambitious. But at the same time, in verse 6, in order to be recipients of His grace, we must also humble ourselves. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You see, in order to be a recipient of God's grace, you must be, according to this passage, one of the humble. Someone who submits his will or her will to the will of God. That no longer lives life for yourself, but for God and His glory. You see, the antidote to selfish ambition is not behavior modification. It's not some sort of self-imposed self-control. It's not being a monk and, and shutting yourself off from the rest of the world. The antidote to selfish ambition is to instead humbly submit oneself to God and His wisdom. It's not to do all ten of these things in verses 6 through 10. It's to humbly submit oneself and follow through in obeying God in those things. A lot of you don't know my alter ego is a barista. I throw down swans and hearts and leaves into coffee drinks. And it's fun. People coming to you soon. Don't worry. And one of the things that we think about when we hire new baristas, something we're doing now, is something that comes from one of my favorite books, uh, from a restaurant restaurant tour. Can't say it. it's French English. A restaurant tour. Danny Myers, his name. He says you should look for in the restaurant industry or the coffee industry, the hospitality industry, uh, people not that don't have technical skill. They don't have um, abilities to cook uh, or to host, uh, they have something else that you should look for. Because you can teach somebody to cook, even uh, Michelin star level. You should look for, he says, people with emotional intelligence. You should look for people with empathy. Uh, people who have the ability to connect with other people. In the moment you can find someone with 51% emotional intelligence is the moment you've found somebody who will last in the restaurant industry, at least according to Danny Meyer. 
in the restaurant industry, emotional intelligence is the one thing that you must have. It's the X factor. You see, you could cook and clean and uh, polish the menus and the glasses and the tables and the chairs and get your restaurant all kinds of nice. But if you don't have people who have emotional intelligence, you won't be successful. Well, in James's version of that, not in a restaurant, but in the church, God's people must have humility. It's the X factor. Uh, you can do all other sorts of things and try to obey and join ministry teams and small group and do all kinds of right things, but without humble submission to God, yes, at the point of salvation, but continually throughout life, submitting one's will to the Father all the way to the point of death like Jesus in the garden. Father, your will, not mine. Then you cannot be, in James's sort of terms, successful in God's economy. You must be humble. You must humbly submit. The antidote to selfish ambition is humble, holistic submission to God. That's verse 7. Look at verse 7. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. James continues to paint this picture of humility in 7b. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. This kind of full submission to God will include also resisting God's very enemy, the devil. You see, not only should we resist the passions and pleasures of this world, we are to resist also the prince of the power of the air, the one who works and runs this world system. And with that resistance, the resistance of, the, of a servant of God, the devil will flee. He'll get off your shoulder. This is the idea in Ephesians 4.27. Give no opportunity to the devil, Paul writes there. Verse 8 brings another element of this humble submission. Look at verse 8. Draw near to God and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Verse 8 brings another element of this humble submission. While we are to resist the devil, uh, we can and should and now are able to draw near to God. Uh, knowing that in salvation, we who were far off have been brought near that we now have access by faith into the grace in which we stand. And Hebrews 10, 22 draws this picture. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. You see, this is a beautiful picture of repentance. Yes, at salvation, but constantly and consistently throughout the Christian life. That's cleansing and purification. Not so that we would be any more acceptable to Him or be in His presence and earn that, but that with hearts full of humble gratitude, drawing near as unworthy yet redeemed sinners before our great God, that we would bring acceptable worship that is lives of grace-filled repentance and obedience to our God. Double-minded sinners now cleansed by the blood of the Lamb and single-mindedly devoted to obeying Jesus our Lord. Verse 9 brings an element of sobriety to the table. Look at verse 9. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. This is an appropriate response to the repentance depicted in verse 8. You see, there's an honest awareness of the facts that we've failed over and over, and yet His grace abounds and abounds. That if it were not for His grace, we would still, in a real way, be dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked. And so before we think that in God's grace we can take a victory lap or do a wheelie or set off some fireworks that would land us right back into selfish ambition land. 
James nudges us in the direction of sober-mindedness. To be wretched, to mourn, and to weep. And again, to let our laughter be turned to mourning and our joy to gloom. It's true godly repentance, true sober-minded awareness of our own status before God, fallen yet redeemed, failing yet given grace. We ought not to count God's victory as our own, lest we see any glory for ourselves in this, in what is completely and rightfully His glory and His glory alone. You see, our times of awareness and repentance of our sin ought to be marked by this kind of grounded, humble worship, sober-minded. And finally, in verse 10, James very fittingly reiterates the humble submission of those with true faith. Look at verse 10. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. If you, instead of selfishly seeking to exalt yourself in this life, if you wait upon the Lord and humble yourself before Him, James says, He will exalt you. He will exalt you. You see, He has raised you up with Christ to new life, and He will exalt you to the heavenly places with Christ one day where Christ now reigns in His throne. Those who forgo the temporary enthronement of this world's riches and power look forward to a future and final exaltation far greater than anything in this current world and anything this earth has to offer. That is what we had to look forward to if we humble ourselves and submit ourselves to our God. Grace on campus, this is the peril of selfish ambition that we ought to eliminate in our lives and instead seek to humbly and sober-mindedly submit ourselves to our God.